Welcome to the Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. So we have a big treat for my show this month. I am speaking with Paul Winter, who is a world-renowned musician and uh, all-around good guy, I have to say, and, and a big friend of WPKN. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, yeah. So I just feel like there's so many directions we could take this, uh, this conversation. And because most of my shows have an environmental theme, I want to talk about that for sure. But um, it, it just give us uh, an ever so brief overview of your career, which spans, I don't know, 50 years anyway, um, from the beginning, which, which I know a little bit about, but I want you just to sort of summarize it with, you know, you work with the State Department and then then we'll, we'll touch on, um, you know, the wonderful, amazing solstice celebrations and up to your brand new album. So can you give us a little summary? Well, I, I should, should just make sure that people don't think that I was uh, for the, working for the CIA or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes, clarify, please. What that was, was a State Department goodwill tour by my first band, the Paul Winter Sextet, in 1962. It was a band that came out of uh, my college experience and had had some lucky breaks and won a collegiate festival and got a recording contract with Columbia Records. And um, then this uh, State Department tour of 23 countries in Latin America in 62 uh, under the Kennedy administration. And uh, so, gosh, I mean, I had been playing music already for a decade since I was 12. I mean, with uh, uh, had my own band since then, having started playing uh, piano and clarinet when I was seven. But uh, it was uh, always was always fascinated with bands of all kinds. Having especially loved the big bands that were that were uh, current during the '40s when I was uh, a kid, and uh, was lucky to to be able to start playing professionally just out of college in 1961. And uh, the jazz sextet lasted uh, about three years. Uh, and I, after that, went and lived in Brazil for a while and there had the vision for a new kind of ensemble with a different instrumentation. And that emerged in 1968 uh, with the name of the, the, the Paul Winter Consort. And that's the band I've been playing with for these 52 years since then. And it's taken us to, uh, lots of places in the world, over 50 countries and six continents and lots of wilderness areas. And uh, the, the, the wilderness and the wildlife and the earth have been uh, a big part of my, my journey. And so they're a big part of the music. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you early on, you sign off uh, on your emails for living music. And I just want you to explain to our listeners, what do you mean by living music? In 19... 1980, after having done 12 albums for major labels and realized that they weren't gonna be interested in the, in the albums I wanted to make celebrating sea mammals or the Grand Canyon, etc., I formed my own label and I used the term living music for several reasons. I wanted the music to continue living. I wanted to record music that was as timeless as we were capable of making. I wanted to record in living spaces that had 
wonderful acoustics such as the Grand Canyon and, uh, and then later the Cathedral of St. John the Divine and other places that we've, we've found in our travels. And uh, I wanted it to have a, a vitality. Uh, so all those meanings of the word living have stayed with me and, and uh, continued to be the, the, uh, the, the aspiration that, that we have making each album. Well, that's thanks for all those different uh, definitions of living music. Um, say a little more, if you would, in, in a little more detail about some of the animals, like you know the whales and the wolves, and how how, it, how you integrate it into the music. The whales, I always credited for opening the door for me to what I call now the greater symphony of the earth. In 1968, I heard there was going to be a lecture at Rockefeller University in New York by a whale biologist about whale songs. And I, that sounded to me just completely strange. And, but being fascinated with most things uh, sonic, I, uh, I went. And that really changed my life. It was amazing to hear these, ama these extraordinary voices that I found to be very poignant, um, very bluesy with a, a yearning quality, which I've since learned as that most voices in the world do. And it was something that I had that had always attracted me to, to jazz singers and players because of that quality. But that they they sang these amazing complex patterns that would sometimes last as long as 30 minutes and then they would repeat the insane complicated pattern verbatim a sequence as complicated as a Beethoven symphony in all the whales and it's the male whales who sing uh, perhaps as some sort of you know mating ritual uh, all the all the males in that region of the ocean would be singing the same song long complex song until you come back the next year and put your hydrophone in the water and they've got a new song and they're all singing it. So that was astounding to realize that there was a, a creature with that sort of intelligence who had heretofore been regarded probably for since time immemorial as a huge fish. And uh, I also learned that night that they were being extinct, uh, exterminated for products like lipstick and dog food Every one of the project, the products could be made more cheaply from sources on land, but they were they were squeezing out the last profits from a dying industry, the whaling industry, and so that uh, night I also became an activist. Wow, that's yeah, that's really amazing. I I did a whale watch off the coast of uh, well north of Boston off Cape Ann, and um, we really it was my first whale watch, and we saw so much. We saw, um, you know, the the humpbacks. There was one in particular. It came like right up to the boat, so close that you know we were a little nervous about what it was going to do. But you know, it it just slapped its flipper on the on the water, and it was sort of you know accompanying us. And then we saw some dolphins, and it just it was a lot of activity. And the the captain said, "If this is your if this is your first whale watch, you may never see anything like this again." <laughs> So we really lucked out, and uh, it was amazing just to to see them. Um, that's a wonderful story. So tell us um, about 
the wolves, who also have amazing acoustical prowess. That same year, 1968, which was quite a bellwether year for me, uh, in the fall, I read in the newspaper in the town where I was living then, which was Reading, Connecticut, that there was going to be a program with wolves at the middle school. And I was instantly attracted to that since uh, I have always been fascinated with uh, dogs, of course, and, and canids. And uh, I thought that would be amazing to see a, 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 an actual wolf and there were going to be two. We are not their enemy. And uh, the history of humans and wolves is quite amazing because it could have been that they, we eventually, as a much younger species, learned to hunt from, wa uh, from watching wolves, how they cooperate. When, when uh, people first lived in, in cold climates where they had to try to, to, to hunt big, big animals. So uh, to make this shorter, the, 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 that night, I was totally mesmerized with these two wolves that he'd been brought on stage. And afterwards, I went around back to just see them go. And they were in the back of this van and the door of the van was open and the one wolf looked out at me and I had eye contact with him for these 30 seconds. It was so amazing. And I sensed in those eyes, not just his curiosity about me, but the wisdom of 30 million years of heritage, which is more than a hundred times as long as our species has been around. And from that came the song that I called Wolf Eyes. Wow, I got goosebumps when you were talking about that. That's, yeah, I've never, I've never looked into the eyes of a wolf or any, any other uh, wild creature, but sounds pretty impactful and amazing. Wow. So um, I just wanted to, you said that was when you became an activist, when you learned that these whales were being hunted and destroyed. Do you see your activism or have you over the decades? Do you do your activism through your music or do you do it another way? I mean, you do, but do you do it in other ways as well? Or just talk a little bit more about that. Well, music is what I think I can offer best. Uh, and I think that ultimately it can lodge more deeply in the memory of people than, than talk and things visual, not because it's better. It's just that the way the, the ear, the, the memory relating to the ear works. And so I've done many benefit concerts for environmental groups of all kinds uh, over these uh, 50 years and continue to, and um, have just released a new album with a new recording of Wolf Eyes after having done the first one in 1977. I also have a, there's a, a dolphin piece and a piece with a wood thrush from Litchfield, Connecticut. And wow. so it's been, it's been great fun to get to hear some of these voices and once in a while get a recording of one and even more rarely to find one that I can incorporate somehow musically and, and, and create a piece so that I can sort of bring that voice to people's attention. Yeah, so let's, um, let me introduce, reintroduce you and then we can talk about um, your new album and I still want to touch on, um, on the uh, solstice celebrations and what's happening or not happening with them because of COVID. So 
I'm speaking with Paul Winter, who is a musician who lives in Connecticut and has traveled the world uh, with the Paul Winter Consort, uh, making albums for more than 50 years. Um, so, and, and you just released a new one, and I didn't get to listen to all of it yet, but of course it, the parts I heard so far really, uh, what's the word? Um, they're so evocative. Um, but this one was a little different than other ones you've done, right? Because of uh, your instrument being maybe front and center more? Most of my life I've been the band leader first and the sax player second, uh, only because I love bands so much. And uh, uh, that takes a lot of uh, attention and organizing. And uh, I, I, I love playing as well. Uh, over the years, I've wondered if, I had a, at some point do an album that just featured my instrument, the soprano sax. And a year ago, I started to work on that and finished it in September, and it's called Light of the Sun. And uh, it, uh, I'm thrilled with it because I feel it's uh, maybe the best album I've made. And it, it's, uh, it'll be part of the uh, upcoming winter solstice, which I'll tell you about when you want to move to that subject. <laughs> Well, that was kind of a good segue, I guess, and and uh, you can, I guess, people can just find the uh, the new album online, and do they? They don't have to buy it from Amazon, do they? No, uh, it, it, my website is paulwinter.com, and so the the uh, albums are all of our albums are available on that, and uh, we're going to. Uh, this year, because the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where we've played for 40 years, um, is closed, uh, obviously. And uh, so instead of a live 41st annual winter, winter solstice celebration, we're doing a retrospective of these first 40 years with uh, video footage from uh, memorable moments uh, over those decades. Wow, that sounds exciting. And so then will it be just, will it be streaming or how do people uh, listen to it? That again, they can learn about that on our website and paulwinter.com and it, it will be streamed. And uh, it's, um, the subtitle is Everybody Under the Sun. And because it includes uh, singers from many cultures and uh, that's been part of the, one of the main themes of the Solstice celebrations over the years. We've always had a guest each year, a special guest from uh, a, a different culture. And so there's an album that has uh, the same title, Everybody Under the Sun, a double album that has uh, 30 tracks, 22 different singers from different cultures. And uh, it includes um, people like Gary Brooker from Procol Harum, uh, with his song, The Whiter Shade of Pale, which was a, uh, a worldwide hit in the late 60s. Uh, Noel Paul Stuckey, Peter, Paul and Mary, who was our guest last year at our 40th annual in New York. Uh, Yvonne Lins and Renato Braz from Brazil. Danny Rivera from Puerto Rico. Uh, various Irish singers uh, and, 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 and African. Wow. I, one of the years I went uh, was Danny Rivera. And I had actually, many years ago, I spent some time in Puerto Rico. And I, 
I love the music. And I had gotten one of his albums back when they were, you know, on vinyl. Oh my gosh. Back in the seventies. And I, you know, I, I just played that over and over. I just really loved it. So I was really excited and I thought it was wonderful when uh, I didn't know, you know, how his voice would be after all those decades, but I thought he sounded great. He did. Yeah. He's, he's a real warrior. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still performing now. I think so. Yeah. We stay in touch. He's a, became a great friend. He's a very, very warm guy and very grateful. Loved the experience playing with us. And then he had me be his guest at a concert at Lincoln center after that. Oh, great. That's nice. Oh, that's, that's, that's fun. So um, another thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, um, promoting, I mean, you've certainly talked about activism around animals and trying to save animals. And I guess humans are animals too. So uh, I know that you've done some human rights work and some, uh, you know, concerts in places that um, maybe are in con- have conflict or I guess conflict is a good word because that covers a lot of territory. Um, uh, can you, and, and have you done that just on your own or through some kind of organization or governmental or not? How how does that work? Everything we've done has just been through uh, people directly we've met. And um, for many years, I wanted to go to Russia. Um, Since I had back in college in the 50s, I I knew that there was a great enthusiasm for jazz in Russia. And it seemed like that it was loved more there than even here. And I ended up corresponding with different jazz fans there, etc. So I tried <clears throat> to get a State Department tour to Russia. It was never successful uh, until 1986. And finally, and I, I had started going there on my own in 84 because I wanted to go to Lake Baikal in Siberia. And I found out that you could go there. I, before that, I mean, everybody I knew thought you, you, would ha- you, you, you couldn't get a visa and, or you'd get your passport lifted by our country. And it was not true. <clears throat> and so I went there just simply on my own uh, as a tourist. I went back four times that year. So I'd experienced it in different seasons and even met a, a, quite a number of people and different musicians. And through that, uh, somehow we got enough of a dialogue with their cultural department that when <clears throat> a new agreement by w- 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 for a new agreement signed by uh, Gorbachev and Reagan early in 86 uh, enabled us to get an invitation to go. And, uh, and that was wonderful. And uh, so that, that was uh, probably the most notable thing we've done in terms of, of international relations and found that uh, these Russian people were absolutely our kindred spirits. They, the, the the electricity between when Russians and Americans got together was so intense that you realized that it was such a myth that they were uh, our enemies. And, and it was very much for me, like the experience of uh, learning the true nature of wolves. Huh, interesting. And they have wolves in Russia, don't they? I presume. They do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was what, wasn't that what President Eisenhower said? He started this people to people thing and talked about, you know, how important it was for people of different nations to get to know each other. So that sounds like what you were doing. And that's, 
Well, they, it, it, the, the cultural exchange program began in 57 and they began sending famous artists around the world. And they sent uh, Benny Goodman to Russia and they sent Louis Armstrong to Africa and Dizzy Gillespie to the Middle East. And uh, it, it, it thrilled me. Uh, I thought that was so great. And all those, they, they became, known, became known as the jazz ambassadors. It, the, 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 our, our government realized that it was a, a great asset that jazz was really uh, an important uh, offering that America had for the world. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it's interesting that people in other countries where it didn't originate would be so passionate about it. Let me introduce you again. This is Paul Winter we're speaking with on the forest and the trees. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we've covered a lot of ground here. I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, Goodwill Ambassador, I think you recently, fairly recently, um, played in Israel, is that right? Well, I've, I've played in Israel about 25 times. Okay. Yeah. Um, and with the consort, you mean? Uh, yes. Okay. Since 68, yeah. Oh, okay. Because there, you know, you're probably aware that there's, um, an or, well, it's not even an organization. It's a movement, I guess you could call it. Um, uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions um, as a um, nonviolent way to pressure Israel to, uh, you know, leave the West Bank, which they've illegally occupied for since 1967. And, um, you know, there's, there's two different uh, ways of looking at, at that. And um, one is, you know, to sort of punish Israel and, and make it, you know, more like South Africa was where people, you know, countries were boycotting it and, and individuals were, you know, boycotting wouldn't go there. Um, to move it uh, toward, you know, justice for the Palestinians. But then there's other people and there's this wonderful combination of people, this, and I'm probably going to blank on their names right now, um, you know, an Israeli and, and uh, I mean, a, a Jewish American, I think, and a, um, I think he was Palestinian, who were musicians and very, very good friends. And they would, you know, do concerts together. Um, do, you, do you know who I'm speaking about? Because I just am blanking on the names right now. There's, um, th th there are a number of ensembles like that. Um, and uh, one of them actually is part of a, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I have created one that's part of a new project I've been doing called Flyways, which is a celebration of the great bird migration from Southern Africa up the Rift Valley through Israel and the Middle East to Europe and Asia and back through half a billion birds make that migration twice a year and uh, began working on that in 1963. Not, not 1993, when we met an amazing ornithologist there after a concert in Tel Aviv. In any case, the, the, the ensemble that will be playing this album, making this album, which is the, the music for which is, is uh, about 90% done, we're calling the Great Rift Valley Orchestra. It includes one musician from each of the 16 cultures over which the birds fly. And we've done several prelude concerts in Israel, also in, um, in, in, in Spain uh, and in, in New York with partly, part of that ensemble that includes um, three Palestinian musicians, two Israeli musicians, African, um, 
Bulgarian, uh, etc. And musicians never have any problem with that. I mean, they may have difficulty getting visas to get together, but once they get together, it's it's totally fine. And I've never had involvement with any kind of boycotting strategy, not that I have any viewpoint on whether it's good or bad. It's just, it, it, it's not the highest usage of music. music. Music can embrace people of all kinds of backgrounds and people who have totally different faiths or beliefs can celebrate in, this, in the context of, 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 the, of, of the same musical experience. And um, the lesson that I learned on that in 1976 was when Jerry Brown, uh, as governor of California, declared Whale Day. And in Sacramento, it was a three-day weekend with all the people who at that time were, were thrilled about whales, biologists, musicians, scientists of all kinds. And it was, it was an extraordinary gathering because whales were just coming into people's consciousness thanks to the recording that my friend Roger Payne made called The Songs of the Humpback Whales in 1970, which did more for whales than all the talk and symposium books and everything that had ever been done, put together. And at that time, there was a, there was a campaign called Boycott Japanese Goods because Japanese, Japan was still whaling. And you saw bumper stickers all over the place. And at that weekend, a lot of people got together kind of off uh, off stage, I mean, not in, as part of the presentation, but just informally. And everybody said, you know, that's really not the right strategy because first of all, it was awakening old racist sentiments from the 40s when, when Japanese people were interned in California. And everybody agreed, let's just go there. We have to connect with the Japanese people and have them experience the whales as we do. So six months later, an Easter weekend, April, 1977, a 747 was chartered. I don't know who put up that money and all a whole gaggle of musicians and poets and scientists from California, including Jerry Brown, went to Japan. And we did a week of concerts in a, in a dome in Tokyo. First environmental event ever held in Japan. It was called Japan Celebrates the Whale and Dolphin. And so, that was far more effective. And before long, that boycott campaign just dried up because it, it, it what it's, it, maybe, it, I'm not sure if this is true. Maybe it reflects the view of people who are at a great distance from the supposed opposing uh, uh, group. And so they're lobbing these different strategies at each other over, if you, and if the people got together, if you actually got those humans together, there's a good chance they could find common ground. This has been such a treat for me, Paul. It's been great to talk with you, Paul Winter of the Paul Winter Consort. You're very welcome, Melinda. It's been a pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. For thousands of people, the Paul Winter Consort Winter Solstice Celebration in New York is a high point of the holiday season. Now I'm going to read something from the website describing what's happening this year. It says... For the past 40 years, Paul Winter's winter solstice performances have brought people together to welcome the return of the sun and the birth of a new year. Set in the extraordinary acoustics and titanic dimensions of the world's largest Gothic cathedral, New York's St. John the Divine, 
The event has grown into an extravaganza of music and dance, a contemporary celebration of renewal. While COVID restrictions mean that a live performance isn't possible this December, such unprecedented times make it more important than ever to look for the return of the light and the revival of spirit. Paul Winter's 41st annual Winter Solstice Celebration will celebrate the power of music to create community and connection with a retrospective video featuring performances from iconic special guests as well as classic Paul Winter consort pieces from Winter Solstice's past. Many of these performances have never been publicly released. Visit the website solstice.concert.com winter hyphen solstice for updates. And a final note, Paul is celebrating the release of his new album, Light of the Sun, today at 12.30 p.m. in just a few hours. Light of the Sun is a milestone in Paul's long musical journey, the first album he has made in which he is the featured soloist throughout. To join, go to patreon.com slash paulwinter. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.